Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast, and really a whole new season. After taking the entire summer off, I am so happy to be back. I'm feeling rested and renewed, and I'm so inspired by the many amazing guests I'll be interviewing this season, so I cannot wait to share them with you. But before I tell you about today's guest, I also have an update for those of you who've been waiting. My co-conspirator Libby Bunton and I have opened registration for our six-month sisterhood circle called Unbecoming, and it begins on October 25th, so please don't delay in hitting the URL I'm about to shout out. It's signup.jointherevelation.com slash unbecoming. Please Go to that URL and book a call with Libby or myself to find out if the program is a good fit for you. If you'd like a little glimpse into what it's about, it's about being true to yourself as an entrepreneur, mother, sister, daughter, partner, wife, friend. It's also about what it actually means to reclaim the power of the feminine, which is something I talk about often, and balance it with our over-identified masculine in what can often feel like a batshit crazy world. It's also about unlearning our conditioning so that we can become fully grounded and anchored in our own bodies so that we can tell our truth and shine our brightest light and make the impact we wish to make in the world by leveraging the values of the feminine, both at work and in our lives, by learning the embodiment practices, tools, and teachings that are going to illuminate your unique brilliance and your unique path forward in ways that will deeply nourish and revitalize you. It's also about exploring what would be possible in a world where women learn how to support themselves and each other by healing the sisterhood wound and creating a more sane and humane planet while also learning to approve of our body's ideas and desires. These are all completely foreign to us until we learn how to say yes to the mess of unbecoming. So now you know why we named our program that. So while you may have to muster up a bit of courage for the grit it will take to make the pearl, you've got this. And trust me when I tell you that this program will also be filled with levity, laughter, pleasure, and play in equal measure. Basically, it'll be the best thing you've ever done. So don't delay. I want all the unbecoming women who are listening to this right now to book a call with Libby or myself to learn if this program is a great fit for you. Go to signup.jointherevelation.com slash unbecoming. So back to our main episode to explore the question, how is the honeybee connected to the feminine? And how does following the bees through ancient myth support dismantling patriarchy? Well, we're about to find out because my guest is Ariella Daly. Ariella is a dream weaver and a bee tender. She's devoted to both the physical and the spirit world, and she synthesizes natural beekeeping, shamanism, dream work, and earth activism through writing workshops and teaching. Her work combines firsthand knowledge of the honeybee species with an intimate understanding of European bee shamanism. She's known for helping people connect to the wild and sacred through their relationship with bees, nature, the sacred feminine, and the inherent intuition of the body. At this time, we are all in dire need of remembering our own sense of belonging and relationship to the more-than-human world, and we're looking for how to reveal, heal, reconnect, and remember. Is it possible that other species, ancestors, and myths are seeking us as much as we are seeking them? People are often drawn to Ariella because they're interested in bees and perhaps have a spiritual calling. Or 
perhaps they want to keep bees in a more natural way. But I specifically wanted to bring Ariella into this episode because of her capacity and talent for dream weaving. I've heard her speak in the past, and you'll notice that when she speaks, she weaves a tapestry of mythology, storytelling, and current events in with her work with the bees. And she's most definitely a bridge for tapping more deeply into the mystery that is always right here. She reminds us what we've forgotten which is how to read the signs and see the symbols and follow that mysterious generative feminine energy that is always an invitation to reveal more. So I'm super excited about this conversation. Please join me in welcoming Ariella Daly. Hi, Ariella. Hi, Monica. Thank you so much for such a beautiful introduction. I'm really pleased to be here. Honored. Well, it's such a profoundly beautiful conversation. I always say, Ariella, that we all contain this medicine inside of ourselves. And part of that medicine is our own story. And part of that medicine is the conversation that we are then weaving into the world and holding as medicine for the world. And I just, this conversation is near and dear to my heart because I think in so many ways, we have been hypnotized or what I call entranced into kind of a disempowering story about what it means to be humans in the modern world. And I think that part of that awakening process is being exposed to conversations that disrupt that trance and bring us back into remembrance and into wholeness and The bees, I think, and especially honeybees, have always held a special medicine for all people, for all beings. And I really am curious and also excited to have this conversation with you because it weaves into so much of the feminine, you know, and the very potent medicine that is the feminine. And so I would love to just start with opening up our conversation by hearing more of how your love of bees and the feminine, like where that thread started for you. Yes, it's, I really agree with you that, that, you know, remembering, remembering our, our inherent belonging to the earth and one of the things that always I always encounter, especially with people who are feeling really, really um, tender about things like climate change and ecological, you know, disaster and that sort of thing, is this this sense that we're the poison and we're the problem, and we we can't heal if we see ourselves that way. Mm-hmm. We really do need to remember that we are also the medicine and we are also the stewards. Uh, as far as my story, you know, finding bees was very circuitous. And a lot of people, whether they're your good old timey, been beekeeping for generations in the conventional style or coming to it from a spiritual perspective, a lot of people are going to say to you, ask them about the bees. They're going to say, well, the bees found me. <laughs> and in many ways, this is also true for me. I grew up with a very rich and deep fascination with myth, story, and culture. And that led me down the road of pursuing a degree in anthropology and really, really wanting to travel. My parents met traveling overseas as teachers, and I was raised on stories. My father was an incredible storyteller. And so I had this innate sort of fascination with stories and what was underneath them and the the people behind the stories. Naturally, the story of the bees came to me through myth and through folklore and through a shamanic tradition. So I was in the midst of having sort of just broken my heart open with coming home from a five-month wilderness experience, uh, coming and going with a group of friends from the wilderness. We were living, you know, going from spot to spot and living for two or three weeks out in the wilderness. I was very raw. I was very open. And at the same time, I went through a, a, a heartbreak, you know, with a, with a love. 
And in that heartbreak, in the, in the process of that heartbreak, he gifted me a, a book. And the book was about a shamanic tradition connected to women and bees that reaches all the way back to ancient Greece. And it, it just claimed me. This book, and I've said this before, reading this book, which is Simon Buxton's book, The Shamanic Way of the Bee, was like that scene in the never-ending story where Sebastian is reading the book and in Fantasia, they're childlike empress is calling back saying, Sebastian, say my name. Say my name. <laughs> and I, I had that moment more than once in the book where I literally took the book and chucked it across the room. Like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. Too, too much, too close, too eerie. Mm. And the book was about these women. And I mean, it's written from Simon's perspective as a male participating in this tradition, but it's about a women's tradition that is still being taught in England, but it's a shamanic or a gynocentric shamanic pathway or folk pathway connected to bees and connected to, uh, you could say, Celtic Britain, Lithuania, and eventually ancient Greece, where there were bee priestesses, bee women named Melissa, which means honeybee. Mm. I went ahead and went to England to study this tradition or to take a workshop learning about these bee women, thinking in many ways that I was going sort of with that folkloric anthropologist, and she just got completely dismantled, and this spirit longing was fully awakened, and this homecoming happened. At the same time, bees moved into a wall, the wall behind my bed. Of course they did. <laughs> so of course I came they did. home and there were honeybees. I know. I didn't even care that much about honey in my life. I was not a bee person. You could have never told me, honey, when you grow up, you're going to be all about bugs. No way. No way. But they were there living wild. And my, you know, now that that it's years later, I, I really think it's incredibly beautiful that it was the wild bees that came first. Mm. I did become a beekeeper a year later, and the bees helped me through one of the hardest experiences in my life and as a woman. So they really, really saved me in a lot of ways, which is its own story. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Sure. Yeah. I was informed by spirit that I would become pregnant by February. And I was trying not to become pregnant. So I did what I could to avoid that. But not everything I could because I did become pregnant February 2nd, right after Imbol. And which is a Celtic holiday celebrating Bridget uh, and, and pregnancy. Literally, you know, the pregnant ewes pr um, bringing forward the milk. That's what Imbolc is referring to in Ireland. And I was so thrilled. This spirit was so close. She'd been with me for a decade. I'd been asking her to wait and wait and wait, but she came knocking so loudly. Mm. And I just gave her the tiniest bit of a yes, and she just popped right in. It was sort of like a, maybe, I guess, maybe. <laughs> and in she came, and I was the happiest I had been in... I, I couldn't remember. I just, everything was right. This was the following year after being introduced to this gynocentric tradition, which is truly wombic, womb honoring, earth as womb, the bees as being connected to that wombic regenerative quality, the regenerative stories of the goddess that we find with the pre-patriarchal stories of Artemis, of Demeter, of Rhea, if we go back to ancient Greece, and of course, other cultures, even Bridget, this self-renewing quality. So I, I had all of this ripe, fertile goddess energy coursing through me, this deep creative connection to the womb. And I got pregnant. And three months in, you know, while I was pregnant, I started building my first beehive. I actually physically got in there and worked with a saw. I painted it. I prepped it. It was such a beautiful experience. And then at 11 weeks, I was meditating with her, the child, and I asked, who are you? Who mm -hmm. are you really? Mm -hmm. And it was almost like another voice came in. It was so loud. It was like a crash of thunder in my mind. And the word was 
oracle. And in that moment, my womb cramped and I went downstairs and I had started to bleed. And what followed after that was a hospitalization because it was the type of miscarriage where my body wouldn't release. And I think part of that was because it was so insurmountable to me that I could be losing this child that I'd been waiting a decade for. Mm. And it was a surgical, I had to have a surgery. While I was in surgery with the anesthesia going under, I, um, I had a vision and I was taken to a cave where I was giving birth in a cave. I was in somewhere in Greece and these women were doing a very particular kind of walk through the cave, crushing aromatic herbs. And it was such a complete vision that I, un I, I knew that it was, a, it was a past life. I was seeing a different time. Years later, I found out that there were birthing caves and that they, you know, all of the things that happened in the vision were, were things that happened in ancient Greece, these nymph caves, birthing caves. But at that time, I was just in complete and utter grief. And the thing that anchored me in the months that followed and the sort of disembodied state that I was in for many, many months afterwards, this sort of continual, it's like my body stopped bleeding, but I didn't. And I was just losing the thread, losing life force energy. It was just draining out of me. And the only thing that anchored me was catching a bee swarm for the first time a couple weeks later or less and becoming a mother to the bees. Mm. I prayed to that child. I said, please let me be a mother. Please bring me something to help me mother. And a swarm of bees landed in an apple tree in the form of a literal heart. Oh my goodness. And I was able to catch them. Tell me when you say catching a bee swarm, I make up about that, that that's like to catch a swarm is a term. So for our listeners, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, first and foremost, honeybees, when we think of the word swarm, we often think of like, oh my God, bees out to get me. Ah! Swarming is actually a regenerative or reproductive moment. It's, it's the birth of a colony. So when you have a mother colony with the bees and the queen, that's in, inside a hive, that's the body, the entire superorganism, all of these daughters, because bees are mostly female. So all of these daughters and sisters and their mother. And when they feel ripe, when they feel full, when they feel optimistic, when the spring has come, when there's nectar and flowers blooming, and they feel like, okay, we can expand, we can expand, we can open up our heart, we can build that wombic quality. Even some biologists refer to the beehive as more wombic than like an animal, uh, more wombic and mammalian than anything else. So there's this wombic expansion. And then they all decide at once, it's time to split, to self-create, to recreate again. And they build cells on their wax, on their honeycomb, to raise daughter queens, young virgin queens. And right before those young daughter queens hatch, the mother, who spent all this time you know, laying eggs and creating these daughters, these bees, the mother and about three quarters, two thirds to three quarters of the bees in the hive swirl out in this massive cloud of bees, leaving behind young bees, nurse bees to raise the young, to help the young queens hatch. And one of those queens will become the mother of that new colony. Meanwhile, that other colony is going to swirl into the sky and they're going to all alight on a branch of a tree or some other, you know, post of a fence, gathering together, holding onto each other in this sort of re-embodying state as they seek out, as sisters within that swarm, seek out a home. And a beekeeper can come to that swarm, that moment of orgasmic birth, and very gently gather those bees. Literally, you, you know, for experienced beekeepers, you can scoop them by the handfuls into a box or into a hive. These are at their most docile when they're newly formed in that state, that state of birth. Obviously, please don't go and do that on your own. <laughs> you know, don't just stick your hand into a swarm. We are experienced as beekeepers and we learn how to be with them. But it's a truly altering state. If you go into a swarm or near a swarm, you are immediately taken to an altered state. Wow. So that's how I got my bees. <laughs> yeah. 
And there's so much coming up for me just as I'm kind of imagining where you were in your need, you know, as you were kind of saying, you know, this just really longing for something to nurture in that moment. And just all of the synchronicity that plays out, not only from the the wild bees showing up in the wall behind your bed or behind your room, and then the way in which it's like even that rupture or that miscarriage became a bridge into a gnosis or a knowing of a past life experience that it was all happening for you, you know? And I'm like, I'm, I never, it never gets old, like hearing women's personal story of being ecstatically met by the feminine. I'll say that. Mm. Because there's all of these different ways in which we can be ecstatically met by the feminine. But what I find is a theme over and over and over again is some kind of rupture, some kind of descent, some kind of like a, a dark night or a, a schism, a place that is like that brokenheartedness that you had talked about earlier, those become truly the places where the light gets in. But there is a darkness first, you know, and I just find that so fascinating. I have to agree. <laughs> it's the, you know, the rupture, the the descent. We have it in so many myths, Cory and Persephone, Inanna, this, it's, the, it's this required descent into in the womb tomb. Yes, into the womb tomb. Into the earth. Now, the Celts built their, yeah, the ancient Celts built their, their long burrows, their tombs in the earth because the earth was both the place of the ancestors and death and birth. And I think that this is, this real descent into the, the dark night of the soul is not something cultivated or facilitated. We don't have someone holding our hands through it. We have to go seek that out. Many people go through it and don't even know what it is, what they're going through, you know, and then we call it depression. I you know I've, I've been there and, and that, that's real. We have a name for it. We have a medical term for it. But from a shamanic perspective, that's a very potent and ripe place for the transmutation. That's right. And I think we're there right now collectively. We're in it. Right yes, <laughs> yes, we are. Yeah, and another another word just to name it for our listeners is an initiation, you know, and yeah. these initiations, you know, if we're lucky, I can say that sometimes because it's in the same vein I say don't forget to laugh. You know, these experiences come and shake us and take us way out of our comfort zone and Often it's a very disorienting, messy process, just like birth. It's, it's a, it can feel primal. And also, I love that you said it's a requirement, like that there's this, I think that's why we call it a rite, <laughs> a rite mm -hmm. of passage. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's a forging that happens in the passing through, in the bridging over into a different state of being. And you can't unring that bell. And it's only when you get there that you realize what a gift you've been given. Oh, it's so true. So true. That, that, that threshold moment I like to say the bees saved me, but it, it's not like it happened all at once. It was a period of time. And I, I remember, so I went back to England. I actually went back and studied for over a decade, so many flights over to England, you know, with some time off here and there, but I kept going back and I was still in it. It took years for me to come out of that dark night of the soul. And I think that that's something that we forget, you know, when we go through an initiation, when we're in the dark night of the soul, I remember one of my teachers pulling me aside and naming it. She said, you are in the dark night of the soul and you don't get to know mm -mm. when you're going to come out of it, but we get to know that you will. And we can tell you that. And that's so imperative because what happens when we're in it, and there are many other times when we can come to this threshold location, but the threshold location is a time of mutability and liminality. So we have a saying in the Lyceum or the Path of Pollen that the Melissa, the bee woman, 
Because the Melissa is both an ancient priestess and an, a current type of person who is, you know, shamanically working in these ways. So the Melissa, the bee women, and they're also in spirit. They're the spirits behind this work. They are lovers of liminality. They are lovers of threshold locations. And part of the reason why is because when we are in a threshold location, and you just said this, reality becomes mutable. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we can potentially dream the impossible into being. Shift things, change things, solve things in ways that we couldn't with the old mind and the old self. And yet we haven't stepped into the new paradigm, the new self. And there's this possibility of, of touching the numinous and touching the infinite and rewriting the story. And I think that's really important on an individual and also a collective level. We work a lot in bee shamanism with this idea of the figure eight, which is called the lemniscate very alchemical work here. And, you know, that that time, that threshold time is an alchemical time. It is, as you said, being forged in the fire. The figure eight is how the bees actually communicate. They both fly in that shape near the hive, and they physically dance on the honeycomb or on the comb, which is the living tissue, the living structure they live upon, those hexagonal combs. They dance in the figure eight, moving in a figure eight to communicate abundance, to communicate flat where the flowers are, to communicate to their sisters the nectar source, the nourishment. And so we work with that symbol, that symbol of infinity that the bees inherently move with in their bodies as a way to travel the roads of infinity and the roads of polarity. So our ability to be, you know, moving through the extremes of darkness and light, of seriousness and levity, as you said, bringing in the humor of male, female, masculine, feminine. But what's important is that place in between, that spot in between where both are true, where both are mm. occurring, where neither nor both and this, this not, this threshold location and I would invite us all to recognize those times in our lives where we've been at those threshold moments, that place where things get a little bit foggy and misty, and yet something else is bubbling beneath the surface. And then to consider that perhaps these years, this decade, this century, this epoch, I don't know how long it's going to last, but that we are in one of those times that got really turned up a notch by the pandemic. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm over here with this smug look on my face because I'm like, I told you so. I told you she's magical. I told you she, you know, you're just such a beautiful storyteller. And I, I just want to reflect you. that back to you because there's this way that like, when you speak, you just take me to, you know, a place where my imagination is so activated. So there's some medicine there in your voice, for sure, that really is, now I know, you know, it's mercurial. Uh, just such a, like, well, it's like you said, you know, it's touching into that infinite place, but holding also that threshold between those two worlds and making it much more available mm -hmm. to those who are listening, for me at least, becomes this very palpable place. And I also want to point to for my listeners that one of the things that Ariella is talking about as well is kind of what we have spoken of as this place between stories that Charles Eisenstein talks about, which is this invitation to dream a new dream, to recognize this threshold between the old and the new as a bridge that we all get to be a part of, to stand on with curiosity and courage, and also to feel empowered. I think that we all, for me, you know, the Revelation Project is about revealing these thresholds. They're about revealing this integrative process between the masculine and the feminine, revealing what's been hidden from us. And the revelation project for each and every person is its own journey. And so 
you know, as we continue this conversation, I just want you to step into it, you know, as the listener and understand that you're a valuable, valid, and important, critical, in fact, part of the new story that we're creating. And just, it's a, it's a bit of a poke here and daring you to dream a new dream for yourself and for the future. Because I think oftentimes these dark nights, what they provide for us is the contrast that we need to get more deeply in touch with what we're really longing for and what we're truly desiring. And that creates its own energetic that then begins to create a field of possibility and potential. That longing, you know, permission, permission to have that soulful longing and the inherent, I would say, like threaded into that longing is this whisper. Sometimes it's a very loud symphonic cacophony of Eros. That Eros isn't just about sexuality, that Eros is about this love affair. We all want to fall more deeply in love, not just with people, but with belonging, with the earth, with the movement of the tides, with the moon, with the seasons, with the food that nourishes us. This ability to be in kinship is tied to the flow of love and the flow of eros and this is the supernatural relationship that bees show us the love affair between the bee and the flower invitation to be in your longing and be with that because that is a road that is a guide for you yeah and that might be a great segue into maybe delving a little bit more deeply into why bees, like tell us more, Ariella, about bees as it relates to the feminine, women, the womb, like tell us more. Absolutely. There's so many different directions I could take this, <laughs> the answer to this question, but let's go back to ancient Greece. Let's go back to the ancient mind and those pe the, the people, you know, we can't just think of it as a culture, but the actual people who are relating to a landscape. And this is not just true of ancient Greece, but we're using this as an example. The earth itself, Gaia, Gaia and Gaia was a goddess, was a primordial energy. There was, of course, the Olympian gods, or there is, that we all know about, pantheon of the gods. But before them, there were older gods. And one of the older gods who then got incorporated into the Olympian gods, and, and that narrative was Gaia, was this earth. And earth was mother. We hear about that in so many cultures. Earth was something that humans could relate to, because out of the earth came primordial waters, life. Out of the earth also came the bees. Bees in their natural habitat, especially in a place like Greece. Greece and Crete, which was the home of the Minoan culture, which is actually where we first see the signs of the bee, um, what we might call the bee culture. Crete and Minoan culture really influenced classical Greek culture. So if we look at that landscape, let's just take it straight to the earth itself. That landscape is riddled with caves. It's a Mediterranean landscape, so it's warmer. Lots of caves and lots of beautiful old, old trees. Where do bees live when they're not in hives, in human hives? They live in tree hollows and they live in caves. So out of the cave and out of the dark hollows, out of the body of the mother, came life. Out of the body of the mother came bees. And the bees every year showed up in the spring. So they showed up when the world became fertile again, when Persephone returned to her mother, when we had the return of spring and life and fertility in abundance. They came back when the Pleiades started to rise on the, you know, on the horizon in the spring these stars, these bees, which people often thought came from the stars themselves, descended from the stars, and emerged from the womb bit, from the earth itself. 
the earth became a way for humans to relate to what happens, this great mystery of life. So the womb, the woman, you know, what we see is this, this ripening or this fullness showing up in the female body. And then the primordial waters break. Those inner waters break. And with that gushing forth of water comes new life. In places in Greece where there were this, when there was this combination of water, like springs and caves, which were, of course, the, like that wombic, that entrance to the, the li- place of life. This is where you would find bees. This is also where you would find the culture of the nymphs, the divinities that were both woman and nature divinity, local to place. These divinities that were be nymphs, Melissa, and then eventually also the priestesses that were connected to the oracular work of listening to the earth. So bees are, you actually find them in connection to the nymphs all over Greece. They were considered to be the first nymphs who came down to earth, who arrived on earth, who then uh, resided in these cave-like places where literal bees would come from. In fact, if we go over and we look at one of the places where bees are strongly associated, which is the Oracle of Delphi. Delphi or Delphi, depending on how you pronounce it, is a place in the mountainous region, in the wilds, by the way, most oracular centers in the ancient world were often in threshold or liminal locations out in the wild. So out in the wilds, away from major cities, it got built up and became a major sanctuary city site. But prior to that, it was this wild location where Melissa, where the bee, the woman known as the Pythia or the, the Delphic bee would offer prophecy, receiving that prophecy first and foremost from the earth itself from the mouth of the earth, there was said to be a crevasse or a, a deep, dark, wombic chamber that the priestess would descend into, and she would inhale the fumes of the earth, possibly gases, and breathe up from the earth itself. Sometimes it was said that she was breathing up Python, the energy of Python or the breath of Python, who was in the older stories, the first daughter of the earth. So the first oracle in Greece was considered Gaia, the earth. The second oracle was the serpent, Python, or the the dragoness. And she gave prophecy to these women. So think about this connection between the earth and this rising of energy, which you know, we often hear about the serpentine energy rising in, in the kundalini aspect. So it's, it's mm-hmm. right here as well, rising up, filling the womb, and then being uttered and spoken through the Delphic bee as prophecy. Said that it was prophecy the whole world could hear. And even within that, she would sometimes speak in hexameter, a six-sided verse, all inspired by the bees. And furthermore, there was a bee cave just up the way, the cave of the bee nymphs um, at Delphi. So there's just all these connections between this deep wombic resonance, this place of knowing. In bee shamanism, we talk about the womb as the first brain. It's this bringing our energy down into the library of the womb, the creative vessel of the womb, not just for children or making children, it's this, or, or life, it's, it's a creative center. And it's a healing center. And from this place, true gnosis or knowing can arise. In fact, written over the Temple of Delphi was the phrase, know thyself. This is what we've been talking about, you know, gnosis, know thyself. So that would be one way the bees are connected to the feminine, as well as many other goddesses. Demeter and Cory were both connected to the bees. There's a there's a lot of a lot of connection throughout the ancient world. I love all of that history, mythology, history, and how does following the bees through some of these ancient myths support? the dismantling of patriarchy? Well, first and foremost, (laughs) what a topic, right? (laughs) I always like to state that the dismantling of patriarchy is a dismantling of a system that we have all agreed upon, even, even though it was forced on us, it's still all agreed upon it. It's alive and well within each of us. So it's not just about men. 
we are all suffering from an out of balance system, the, this patriarchal system. And if we go back and look at what was pre-patriarchal, it's really easy to want to flip it to matriarchal cultures where there was like women ruled and now, now we're in the patriarchal where men rule. And that is not how I understand patriarchy. I think a better term when we look at what came before is gynocentric. The anthropologist and archaeologist Maria Gumbutas was, was spoke of cultures this way. She's an incredible resource for old Europe goddess culture. And this, this gynocentric meant women's woman-centric or earth-honoring or of the womb. It was this way of honoring the feminine as a source of life. Again, we come back to the bees as, as a representative of the source of life, of bringing flower to fruit. It didn't mean at the detriment or exclusion of the masculine. It just meant that there was this earth-honoring feminine quality. And I think when we look back at some of the old myths, we actually start to see where the split happened, where this patriarchal shift happened. And sometimes by looking back at the myths, we actually start to see a way forward because we start to see these big cycles of time. So an example would be, and I'm going to use both the bees and the myth to, to talk about how this might be relevant today. When we look at the, the myth of Demeter and Kore, so Demeter was a pre-patriarchal goddess. She existed before the Olympian gods. And she was the goddess of the grain and the harvest. She was an agrarian goddess, and her one of her titles was the bee. Her priestesses were the Melissa, specifically at Eleusis, where the Eleusinian mysteries took place, which celebrated the mystery of life and death and the return of Cori as Persephone to her mother. So that's jumping ahead. Let's go back to the story. So the story we all know is that Demeter has a daughter named Kore, which just means maiden, or it has a few meanings, but maiden is one of them. And Kore is with her nymphs. Kore is also known as Melitotes, uh, which is meant honey-like. And she's with her maidens picking flowers in this abundant nectar-filled meadow. And these maidens are other nymphs. So again, we have this connection between the divinity that is both feminine and nature. And a crack opens in the earth Hades or Pluto comes out and abducts her, which is a very sort of nice way of saying he rapes her. That's the story of the rape brain brought into the earth, taken down into the underworld. So Hades is the ruler of the underworld. And here we have the transformation, the underworld journey of Kore as the maiden becoming sovereign, becoming unto herself a queen in her own right as Persephone, queen of the dead. Persephone then eventually returns to Demeter, but Demeter in the meantime is in this time of grief, incredible grief, so much so that the land stops fruiting and flowering and we have winter. We have our first long winter that's lasting many, many months, many years. And this reunion when Persephone finally returns is part of what's celebrated at the, or what was celebrated at the Eleusinian Mysteries. So that's the story. That story is not my point. I believe that that story is actually a story that marks, that tells us of when the split started to happen in mythic form, when this takeover happened where there was no longer an honoring of the feminine process, of the goddess rebirthing herself. There are older myths and, and, and people who believe that what was actually happening in that moment before we had the story of Hades and Pluto was that Persephone was preparing to rebirth herself just as the bees do, to regenerate herself through weaving, through collecting the flowers. She was in the process of weaving, which is symbolically the process of creating life. To weave is to create life. We see that, of course, with the weaving of the fates. So she's in a process of weaving. And she notices in one of the stories with her mother as they travel, she notices that there's these lost souls. And these lost souls don't know where to go. They've passed on, but they don't know where to go. And she has deep and incredible compassion for them as they wander the earth. And she says to her mother, what are they doing? And she says, well, they just can't find their way into the underworld, to the place of the ancestors, to the place of rebirth and regeneration. And Kore, 
as she's preparing to become, to birth herself anew, to become the next incarnation of herself, voluntarily chooses to descend to the underworld, to become the guide, to become the midwife who receives the souls of the dead in the underworld. And this is a t this becomes her initiation. So she becomes Persephone. She becomes the queen of this underworld through this midwifery, which is a very different story. I want us to take us now to the bees. The bees in the winter, what happens? What happens when Demeter comes? When Demeter in her grief, because she was still in grief that her daughter left her, what happens when we go into this winter time? Well, the bees, we talked about expansion and swarming. Well, they also contract. And all of these sisters that have been gathering nectar and pollen to support this one superorganism, they start to die. Many of them give, up, give their lives away, they die, and only a small group of sisters are left. And these sisters have the ability to outlast the winter. They're, they're made of different stuff. And they're going to keep the mother warm through the long, dark winter. They're going to tend to the mother. And in that pollen and in that honey that's been collected are the old stories of spring and summer, or the stories of the flowers, or the stories of abundance. When the mother is ready, when the bees are ready to return, when Cory is ready to return from the underworld as Persephone, the mother starts to lay eggs. And these bees, these young bees that hatch, they will never have seen the flowers but they will taste the stories in the honey. They will taste the stories in the pollen, which is the food the young bees eat. They eat pollen and they eat honey. And through this scent, through this yes, scent magic and alchemy that is honey and alchemy that is the bee bread, which is pollen transformed through fermentation, they will learn the histories of the land. They will learn the stories of their people. They will learn even though the generations of bees that collected that honey and pollen have passed. And when the spring arrives, when they mature and they're able to reunion with the sun, reunion with the land, come back to the land, these bees will be able to recognize the abundance of the flowers through having tasted the stories. And I, I know it's just a metaphor, but imagine for just for a moment what if these old stories, what if these fragments are that nectar, that pollen, that honey that's been passed down to support us in this time of the long dark night of the soul, of this great forgetting, so that us as daughters and sons can remember, can taste, and, and perhaps even pass on to the next generation, because who knows if we're going to see that new time in our lifetime, if we're going to see that reimagined earth in our lifetime, that we get to be part of the stories that get passed on and the reweaving of the stories so that something else can happen, a new era can dawn. I don't want to just sound new age, but I do believe that we have to invent a different way to be. And, and it's not even inventing, it's a remembering, it's a coming back to these old ways of being with the land and being in a relationship and saying hello to the tree right outside your door. So that's one way. It's just reweaving of these old myths, and, and they become incredibly relevant to today, to now. The bees can teach us things about how to be in the world. So beautiful and so potent. You know, I, I just really, it's like, hello, this is, it feels so... It's one of those like stories and mythologies and realities mm -hmm. that are all weaved together, just create this tapestry of deep revelation and understanding about the connections, the interconnectedness of all of these things, and why they're so important and symbolically go back to that never-ending story. Hmm. but also how the nothing was sweeping and, and right. overcoming everything that mattered, that was important, that the naming it, it was by calling back into being. It was by daring to believe, like Sebastian in that case, daring to believe his voice mattered. Absolutely. That is what 
created a new reality and stopped the nothing. And so again, we see some of these, what seem like surface level stories having so much richness and depth and their nourishment for the soul and the spirit that's going through the dark night, that's being consumed by the nothing. Yeah, and we know the nothing. We feel it. You know, I think every one of us hears that. Oh, yeah, the nothing. That sort of. I think there's a difference between the void, as like a, a rich place of creative energy, and the nothing that is like the feeling of that being like consuming our culture and consuming the earth. Is you know this onslaught. Well, I would call the nothing the superficial. Exactly. Call the nothing the soulless. I would call the nothing. You know, when you've lost your spirit. I would call the nothing the loss of imagination and really the loss of love. Yeah, exactly. And it is, it's not just the renaming, but it's his imagination. He imagines Fantasia and it comes back. And I, I think that's, it's so vital to lean into our imagination, which is why myths can be so helpful. Stories can be so helpful. Our, our imagining and our curiosity is such a tool. I mean, it is the tool of the shaman that becomes one of the places that allows us to journey and allows us to see beyond and see other possibilities. And we all we all have these very rich imaginations that that you were born with and they they often get uh, tamped down or cut off at the roots, but we can find that again, that imaginative energy. We need it. We need it. And, you know, I know that you and I kind of share this thread of, you know, Waldorf education in our mm -hmm. lives with our children. And I think one of the most important tenets for me and values that became so important to me, because I was somebody that grew up in a Catholic school system, and but like a lot of public schools as well, you know, that very linear way of kind of going about our lives that that kind of invalidates imagination at such an early age atrophies our muscle and you know as adults what i encounter over and over again in my work with women is this atrophied imagination and i've really recognized it as one of the most important areas of work to reactivate mm. because it's through the imagination that we remember our playful selves that with imagination comes color and levity and potential and possibility and enchantment and it's such a beautiful way in fact, I think one of the most potent ways to disrupt the trance yeah, and to bring new ways of being into our everyday life that shift and change everything. I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, in a lot of my classes, that is, we're focusing on cultivating the imagination. It's actually a really big part of be shamanism as it's taught today or as it was taught to me. It's vital. And I think one of the places that we collectively find the imaginative is is in stories but sometimes we get distracted by the screen you know so so it's the having that share that sharing of stories you know, going back to those childhood stories that really got you and, and and playing with them play 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 is so vital and we all know this when you're when you've got a problem and you're just sitting there you know, at your computer screen or you've got your notebook out and you're just like, oh, I gotta figure this out. I gotta figure this out. I gotta figure this out. You are not gonna figure it out in that state of mind. We are. Mm -mm. We just don't. We don't. It comes in these aha moments. It comes when we take that drive out to the sea and just be with the ocean, or when we're having a you know a coffee with a friend and laughing about something completely unrelated. And then there it is. There's that idea or through dreams even. So many ideas come through dreams for, for, for people who are able to remember their dreams. It's just isn't linear. <laughs> so we're, it, we're up against these problems of our time that, is, that are so personal and so massive, such, such wide scale, overwhelming problems to solve. And we get so serious about it because it's heartbreaking. 
and it's overwhelming. We atrophy and we go into a state of apathy. If you if you want to read about that, look at World as Lover, World as Self, Joanna Macy's work about that apathy and like I can't even look at it. It's too much. I'm just going to scroll through reels and, and, and whatnot on social media. I think another door, another way in beyond, you know, the things that I often teach was like nature connection or working with bees is, is that levity, is that play. I'll never forget a revelation that I had once that that occurred to me as such like a, you know, I could have had a V8 kind of thing. Like, how did I miss this? You know, it's like when people say lighten up, there's a reason we want to be light. You know, it's actually the density. It's the the apathy or the despair that all of that dense energy kind of keeps us well, it keeps us in this very linear, very this reality, like surface level reality, where kind of the lighter we get, the more kind of that heaviness lifts and the veil kind of becomes thinner and the closer we are kind of to the magic and the mystery. And that also comes with those states of wonder when we go to the ocean, like you said, or we're finding ourselves just enraptured with the magic of nature. And it's just all of that, all of those states of being are these incredible portals into more deeply kind of understanding that there's so much more to be revealed. Mm-hmm. And that we are the ultimate storytellers. And so what's the story we're telling? You know, what's the story we're telling in our density? And whose stories are we consuming that are creating the density? Because oftentimes that superficial screen is the place of compare and despair and so many other things. So there's a way, I think, that like everything... Ariella, there's a balance and too much of anything becomes kind of a a tipping point into probably another not so nutritive place. But it's, it's just again, that awareness and that remembering. And for me, it's actually like the body always holds that wisdom for me. It's like if I've stopped breathing, or I'm tense, or I'm noticing how I'm just feeling heavy. Those are all signals and signs to me that it's, you know, that there's actually some, usually some feminine to bring, mm-hmm. which I consider play, which I consider storytelling, which I consider imagination and nature. And yeah, all these other ways of knowing, you know, we, we value one way of knowing. <laughs> I love that you said that. So yeah, so I, as a kind of, I know we're right about it time and I'm just like, wow, it's the time has passed by so, so quickly. And it always does when I'm in enchantment. And so I'm so enchanted by you. I'm so in love with what you bring to your, to your commitments, you know, to your conversations, to your work in the world. I'm so appreciative of everything you've shared with us today. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's it's a really nourishing conversation for me to have with you as well. So I'm my cup is filled. Thank you. Yeah. And I would love for you to tell our listeners, if you'd like, anything that you've got going on, different ways that they can work with you, anything like that, because I'm sure they'll want to learn more. And I'm going to, of course, include many links in the show notes, but I'd love it if you have something you want to invite them to. Hmm. Sure. I think the most exciting thing on the horizon is uh, my 2023 Women's Virtual Beekeeping Apprenticeship. And beekeeping is like a, a sneaky word there. It's it's bee tending, it's connecting with the bees, it's connecting with the divine feminine, it's connecting with uh, many of the teachings from bee shamanism, working with the body, so much embodiment work, breath work, movement work, et cetera, et cetera. So it's 10 months and uh, it will be starting in January and the registration uh, will be open by the time this this airs. So that's a fun thing. And then you can check out some of my dream classes. It's another really wonderful way into the imagination. Those are ongoing. There we go. I love that. I'm going to check them out for myself. Yay. All right. Well, and 
Ariella, are you, do you also offer one-on-one? I'm just curious. Do you do anything like that? Or do you do consulting? I, the, the best thing if you want to do one-on-one with me, because I, I do sometimes do mentorship, but it's, it's always full, <laughs> is yeah. to work with me in one of my oracular dream work sessions. And very quickly, what that means is that you're with me for an hour. Uh, you bring a dream. And I do something called Wombic Dream Mirroring in an oracular state. So again, we go back to Delphi and the connection between oracle work and the beginning of my story, oracle. The process of losing that daughter sent me back to England and I studied to become what I am now, which is not just trained in shamanic healing through the bee shamanism, but deeply trained in what we call seership or oracular work which is emptying out, dropping into the womb, becoming the wombic mirror and mirroring back your dream in in a nourishing, nutritive way that becomes a road to follow or a map to follow for your own own deeper understanding of your soul, yourself, your direction, et cetera, et cetera. So those are are one of the best ways to work with me one-on-one. Amazing. Well, thank you for bringing that to it as well. I love knowing that. And for our listeners, I'll be sure to put all of these um, incredible resources and links in the show notes. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation today as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.